Hi, this is Paul, and this is another one of our marriage conversations that we are having with, with Rod and Eamon and Catherine. This is the fourth such thing that we've been doing, and we um, we don't really have a big script. We're all sort of watching similar things. We pass things around, and we make observations about what's going on, and you know, we don't all know exactly where this goes in terms of our conversations, but we're, we've been having fun on the journey. And so here we are again today, and we don't even have a plan for this video yet. In the past few videos, we've had Rod sort of set the table with some things. We've been passing some items back and forth. Uh, have all of us watched the Tammy Louise Perry thing? Well, Rod, why don't you start with your observation with that? Because I thought that was absolutely tremendous. Yeah, well, I, I uh, when I sent it to you, I described it as a grandmother talks to a mother about feminism. And you, you picked up on right away the, the, the tone was such a different tone than all of the other interviews that I'd seen Louise do. All good, but this was good in a different way. I was, I was struck by how... Well, so then I've also passed around, I've done it on Twitter a little bit. Richard Beck is a favorite blogger of mine. He's sort of post-progressive Christian, and he's been writing on Louise Perry's book and, um, you know, sort of, it, it's been, it's been remarkable where the post-progressive um, movement is how that's been developing this morning too. Jacob pointed my attention to um, uh, Helen, who was the woman that Peterson had? It wasn't, it wasn't the Kathy Newman interview. It's the second, you know, really. Helen Lewis. I think. Helen, Helen Lewis. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Helen Lewis has a podcast about the gurus. It's sort of like deconstructing the gurus, but it's on BBC four. So it's a little bit bigger. And um, David Fuller was on that as well. And so Helen Lewis is, is sort of poking at all of this stuff. But, you know, Tammy Peterson in that interview, I, I, I loved her demeanor because she's just sort of like, here she is on the internet. She doesn't have anything to lose. She's She has this quality that this is part of the reason I love working with seniors, because people tend to get to a certain age and they're like, screw it. This is what I think. I don't care if it's politically correct or, or incorrect. My grandchildren are not going to disown me because I'm their grandma. So this is what I think. And, and I love that. And Tammy Peterson, in just kind of a quiet, nice, gentle way, was just sort of saying, this is what I see. <laughs> it, was, it was remarkable. I, th I think the secret to Louise's program to the extent she has one, and she might or might not, um, is as soon as you realize that the whole system that you've signed up for is making only one kind of person happy, and it's the very kind of person that you hate the most, which is successful guys, that probably is the, the, the wedge that starts to undo this whole program, right? It's like, yeah, what you're doing is making the people you resent the most quite, they're, they're more than happy to sign up to this particular arrangement because it works for them and almost nobody else. Which is a tremendous irony of after 
you know, how many years, 10 years of privilege this and um, patriarchy that. And here, here we've suddenly discovered that feminism is, is itself a, yet again, another sneaky project of the patriarchy to um, make women happy at the expense of men. <laughs> or sorry, the other way around. <laughs> This is a little bit indelicate, but it made me think of just as kind of an anal analogy. Remember the free the nipple project? <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna express my outrage by taking my top off, and that's really gonna show them. And then the guys <laughs> show up with their cameras. It's like that wasn't exactly what I expected. That that, that it wasn't supposed to go that way, right? So it has the same quality, right? Another another um, thing that I've been watching. I'm almost through the three seasons of of rami which is on hulu it's i've the first season was the best but it's been fascinating watching a the son of north jersey immigrants from egypt navigate religion islam in this case and sex mm. and um it's um, it's what what's nice about the series is it shows things sometimes from the parents point of view there's a there's an uncle who's sort of a classic um, um, undeconstructed chauvinist with a kind of a secret that won't, won't surprise anybody who knows the way these narratives are often projected. But um, there's yeah, basically, if you if you watch that show, you very quickly get the sense that a lot of the supposed obvious answers that have been given now for a generation other generations just and other cultures just have huge doubts about and and, and to be sure we're not talking about equal rights for women at least i'm not we're not talking about that well, I, I don't think we have any understanding of well not any understanding but i think we're wrestling with okay well what do we mean about that of course mm. No. Free, free to, free to do what? Free to be what? Or free to be able or freedom from? I think because the difficulty with equal rights is that men and women have unequal needs and unequal capacities and unequal desires. And so with all of the, with all of the sort of structural inequality that we have, what does equal rights really, what do equal rights really mean? There was a, when I was lived in the Dominican Republic, there was a woman who was living in the small, same small town I was, she was an American. And um, she was like many people who wind up at the end of the world. I, I used to, her name was Jean and she was a, she was a woman probably in her seventies. She was going to build a little do-gooding mission up on top of the hill where a bunch of other people were trying to do some good. And she, you know, of course um, I, I, do what I do. And I got her story out of her. And she told me about her divorce and mm -hmm. about how she got divorced in the state of Florida, probably in the seventies, maybe even in the sixties. And, and basically the judge said, there you go. Now you're free, free to be sued like a man. And it's like, and, and I look around increasingly, and I look at a fair number of women who are like, I would love to stay home and have a man provide financially for the family and allow me to um, pay attention 
to my children and raise them and go and volunteer at the school and meet my girlfriends in the middle of the day when they are at the school. And then there's a bunch of men that say, well, you know, if you can make more money than I do, I frankly would love it if you would go to work and keep paying the bills and I could spend a few hours a day playing World of Warcraft and I could uh, go see my buddies at night. That sounds like a pretty, you want equal? That sounds, you know, we men have been paying the bills for years. You know, you get out there into the world and make the money and I'll sit home and raise the kids. <laughs> I mean, these are live conversations. Well, at the same time, there's shifts in structures like, uh, well, even things like alimony. I was talking to somebody the other day that is is going through a divorce, <clears throat> and um, this she's not initiating the divorce. Um, somebody else is, it's her husband's pushing it through on her, and. Um, she was shocked to find out that um, she spoke to a lawyer. The lawyer said, you know, alimony, it's on the way out here. If you're, you're thinking that that's going to happen, it's, it's not going to happen. And, and these changes are, are happening all over. So as more and more women ended up paying. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for <clears throat> whatever the reason, Right. It's like, okay. So again, what conventional wisdom would say is getting flipped again. And I guess that intergenerational um, wisdom piece, I, I think it was, was it you Rod in the, in our, our chat um, highlighted that, that um, you know, Tammy was sort of acting as um, someone passing on that intergenerational wisdom that there is a disconnect um, Oh, I, one of my, um, one of my favorite profs when I was in grad school, uh, he, he, he mostly taught you know, human growth and development and uh, just a throwaway comment he made, uh, when we were talking about young adulthood and, um, uh, you know, middle adulthood, <clears throat> he said, you know, once we had, uh, wisdom from our parents become divorced from, um, our economic outcome that shifted things radically um, you know, as to why you would listen to your parents, right? If you're, if generations you've been farmers and uh, it, you're going to be inheriting the family farm, well, you sure have a lot of motivation to listen to dad um, so that you don't have your crop fail and your family starve. But, you know, now it's like, you know, <laughs> think of it with my own parents, uh, I'd come back to visit and be like, Hey, can you set up like all of our electronic doodads? Because you know, I like to have music that I can listen to on my, my iPod. And can you get our stereo set up? And what I was you know, studying really had nothing to do with um, what my dad and his dad uh, had done for survival. So you know, the, the economic decoupling from wisdom, um, I think it's hard to, to, to overstate that. And that economic element is it's there with alimony. It's there with a, a lot of you know, women who are, are putting off having kids because, well, first secure yourself economically before you settle down because you don't know if he's going to be around. But who do you listen to about your job? What, what's your boss's interest in your career and what you do? Um, if you're looking to get 
uh, advice from your, your dad about what to do career wise. And, and that's going to fit into family and timing for, you know, if, and when you have kids or settle down with somebody, um, what does he know? Um, and, and I, thankfully I, I did receive some good advice and I know people who get good advice from parents, but then there's areas where there's real disconnect. And, and, you know, since we've referenced him a few other times, you know, Scott Adams at times will draw attention to that and like, okay, so, you know, if you took the advice of, uh, you know, make sure you, you know, you work at the same factory your whole life and, um, you know, become a part of the union there. Well, how's that working out for a lot of people? Not that, not that well. And, and so this question of why would I, why would I listen to you? Um, generation that came before me is, uh, is in play. It's one of the things I, I enjoyed most about uh, that conversation was the there was genuine back and forth. And I thought that Tammy did take um, that, that role of um, older woman bestowing wisdom, but in a way that wasn't condescending. And there was some good back and forth. And it's like, that's, that's missing. And uh, that, that economic piece is central. And I, I, I think it's, it's just becoming more complicated, but it, it factors in here. That's what people are, are often really worried about. And I think rightfully so. <laughs> you know, you, you do have to take those into consideration. And how do you navigate it? And what are the interests of the people providing you wisdom? <laughs> I might make a, a slight distinction between wisdom and, say, knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm not sure, like the examples you're giving, uh, which I agree with, are, you know, the, the sort of useful practical knowledge that, you know, in your point of a farmer or craftsman, you know, like you know how to do stuff and you can share that with the next generation and their economic livelihood depends mm -hmm. on that. So I, I get exactly what you're saying. Um, it doesn't seem like that necessarily forecloses a passing of what I would think of as wisdom. I remember sort of, you know, somebody one mm -hmm. time asked me, what do you want in your gravestone? And I, I wanted something like, it wasn't what he knew, it's what he understood. You know, like I, mm -hmm. I, I sort of had an instant sort of skepticism about knowing things. I was much mm -hmm. more interested in understanding things. Um, cause it seemed like then you can sort of seek patterns and you can sort of establish <laughs> relationships. And, um, and so I, I, I get, I get your point, but maybe it's a, it's a distinction worth making that, that you can not know how to, you know, iPods, you just dated yourself saying that, right? <laughs> um, but you know, yeah. not, not knowing how to, you know, get your Sonos to work, um, but still be able to share sort of life wisdom. Well, wisdom, wisdom is applied knowledge. And part of what I liked about the Tammy, uh, Louise Perry, Tammy Peterson, Louise Perry interview was, I mean, Louise wasn't just, say, anti-feminist. If you listened carefully to the conversation, you understood that a lot of the waves of feminism have been adaptations from other disruptions that have come through the world, disruptions of the Industrial Revolution. If you listen to the rest of history, uh, they have a nice episode or fairly early on on industrialization. And I mean roles were radically transformed in, and you can look at it in, in these period pieces from, from the UK, roles were radically transformed from industrialization. In the Rami, one of the Rami episodes, he's going to marry the daughter of a sheik uh, who's running a Sufi Islamic center in Northern New Jersey. And um, they're, they're super, they're paying a lot of attention to Islamic law here because they want to really follow Islamic law. And, well, the question of a dowry comes up. 
Now, if you raise a dowry in today's world, people are like, you know, dowry or a bride price. That just seems totally patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera. But if you understand how a dowry functioned as, well, here's money given from her family to his family. But if the marriage breaks up, that money goes to her with interest, you know, and that money is so that she is financially secure if the marriage fails. I mean, in many ways, that system is ancient alimony. And mm -hmm. so ancient wisdom understood the particular needs and 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 issues set within those contexts. And, you know, part of the point I made in the video I posted today, which I know not of you all, not all of you had a chance to see, to Jordan Cooper and John Verveke was that, you know, John goes and visits his visits church and he hears these, the, you know, whispers of what theologians are talking about. And he's excited. And I had to say, no, churches are being formed by market forces, technological forces, psychology, sociology. Churches and, and theology have, have suffered a major disconnection. In fact, um, especially during the seeker movement, many noted that one of the leading negative indicators of pastoral success, and by success in the church growth movement, they meant a church growing to a large size, was a seminary education. In other words, the most successful pastors at growing their churches didn't know very much theology, and they were reading business books. Now, that, is, that has continued to change, but that's the question of knowledge and wisdom, because wisdom is applied knowledge. And I think because of rapid social disruption and dislocation, intergenerational wisdom is you've got a real signal-to-noise problem, and younger generations are trying to sort this out. And older generations have sort of looked younger and said, they're not listening to us anyway. And we frankly aren't exactly sure. We don't ourselves necessarily have a lot of confidence in bestowing what worked in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think that point is a really important one, Paul. Um, I think I mentioned this in our first conversation, but one of the things that my mother-in-law told me that really struck me was um they joined a new church when she was in her mid-20s mm -hmm. um and she joined the missions group and it was all these women it was like the women's mission circle and as soon as she joined and i think another woman around her age joined around the same time all the older women said oh good we've been waiting for somebody new and they said you take over we're done and they said oh well we haven't done this what do you do and the older women so this is the generation above my mother-in-law. I said, we don't know. We've just been moving forward. We don't know what you're supposed to do. We've just been doing our best. So you just do that too. And so I think we're like four generations in to people saying, uh, I don't think I have wisdom to hand down. I don't really know what I'm doing. Why don't you try to fumble along like I did? But I'm not terribly confident in what we should do. So you do have people telling people how to live and handing down wisdom, but they tend to be disagreeable, highly opinionated, usually fairly fundamentalist. And I will include in that 
modern wokeism, which I consider a religion. So you have very fundamentalist perspectives and people who then, because you have that clarity of vision provided by a very clear worldview and a very strong stance on a particular perspective, you, you just feel free to tell everybody what to do. Or you have disagreeable people who will tell people what to do, but then they'll give opposing advice to different people just because they want to disagree with them. And so <laughs> it's not like there's nobody telling people what to do. But um, I think we're, we're well into many generations of there's not an agreed upon wisdom to hand down anymore. People who hand down wisdom that I find reliable are usually pulling from things centuries ago, hmm. old folk knowledge, old fairy tales, old, like, um, very traditional knowledge and wisdom being passed down and then working to figure out how to apply it in modern culture. But I don't feel like we're just a generation or two away from it. I feel like we're, we're pretty far it's a, away. It's in the distant yeah. past. Many parents, we might have, yeah, we might have touched on this at one of our conversations, but many parents not only don't feel qualified to even steer their children, you know, in terms of values or, you know, right from wrong and, you know, some of just sort of foundational things, they don't feel they have the authority. It's like, you know, I'm just going to make sure they have a good childhood, you know, entertaining, fun, um, uh, you know, nothing bad happens to them. And then, you know, maybe expose them to a lot of things and then they'll, you know, sort of, they'll, they'll figure it out basically. I, I, I remember the, the priest who married us, she was absolutely lovely, Episcopal, Episcopalian priest um, and a family friend. And she was, uh, she was uh, teaching um, as, a, as a, like a, a, whatever, an adjunct professor at a local university, some course in theology. It was a Christian university. And she was telling how the, these you know, fresh, earnest young students are asking her, so you know, how do I live a good life, right? And she's telling us, she's like, well, I, she's like, I can't tell you that. Like, I'm, you know, it's not for me to say, basically, right? And she was, she was saying the thing that I'm sure she said many times with lots of nodding heads. Um, like, well, of course, you wouldn't tell somebody something as personal as that, right? And I'm like, but you're a priest. And they're, they're asking you because you're a priest. <laughs> and I mean, I did, I did it nicely. I said, you know, okay, maybe you don't want to spell out a dogmatic doctrinal, you know, set of propositions. But my sense anyway, is that most people actually have a pretty good idea what the good life looks like if you just flip it and say, well, here's what you shouldn't do. Don't do this. I'll give you a list of things. Try to avoid these things. At least you can do that. And as soon as you start saying those things, well, it turns out actually you do have an idea about what you might, you know, might do and not do. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a, there's some, there's some kind of a pose that we're all taking where, you know, far be it for me to tell you how you should live your life. Kind of. Well, and I, I, I like Catherine's point because part of what we're seeing is that fundamentalisms of various stripes are on the rise. And I've been reading this history of the Jews from Paul Johnson, which I've been enjoying. And, and part of this, I think, is a perennial struggle. Part of what happened in the, you know, the Hebrew... Greek culture war that went on for centuries between Hellenism and Judaism is you had the accommodationists and you had the rigorists, the, the, the Judaic rigorists, and they go back and forth. Rigorism has sort of the, the um, advantage of the Lindy effect that 
if you can submerge yourself, whether it's an Islamic community or a Jewish community or a Christian community, an Orthodox community, if you can submerge yourself sort of within this package to a sufficient degree, you might in fact get at least enough cohesion and integration that things, you know, a high enough percentage of things will work for you, at least especially along the lines. But part of what you notice and like this movie, this TV show about Islam and what what I've noticed in Christian circles watching fundamentalists of various stripes work their program, there are always these sort of loose ends around the around the edge that show you're no longer living in the seventh century or the first century or the 16th century. And you're having to do all of these accommodations that usually you're not owning up to, or maybe not even being aware of or not admitting. To, to sort of make this work. But there, there is still, like you said, Catherine, in, in very ancient wisdom, those were semi-coherent packages that if you get enough um, small group buy into for your little Benedict option enclave, you know, it, it, it might be a lot better than sort of the generic package America is giving you. Well, maybe there's another reason. This is kind of what we talked about last time. Maybe there's another reason, though, to do this that doesn't rely on such a, a, a doesn't rely so heavily on metaphysics. Um, you know, we're trying to make a practical case, too, for things like marriage. That's what this is about, right? Um, it, in, back to the feminist thing for a second, right? Because I want to make sure I'm on the record as being in favor. <laughs> I, I want to make sure I'm in favor of of what I used to think feminism meant, right? Which is, I want, I don't want, I want equal protection under the law. I want a, a woman to be able to apply for a job and not be disqualified because she's a woman. Or she, if she wants to go to med school like Catherine wanted to, that, that it, she would be able to, and that, she, and that we, as a society, we would all benefit from full contribution of women to that society. And how many women really uh, want to go back to male gynecologists, right? Like, you know, for example, or whatever, you, you know, like there's lots of, at least those who don't want to. I know like, an eighty-year-old who used to really feel him up. Her daughter was really embarrassed by oh, that. Oh, Paul! <laughs> I'm trying to get us out of this. You're not helping me. <laughs> Sorry, but I agree. I agree with you, Rod. We're on the same right. page. Keep going. Right. <laughs> you know, but the point is, as a society, there are many benefits to having women being able to fully contribute their talents, and I'm in favor of that. And I, and that's what I'm trying to say. But we're pointing at something here, right? Which is that. The freedom from the freedom to you know when you when when there's a when there's a, a kind of homeostasis of some kind between two parties that may not be completely aligned in their interests shall we say men and women when you suddenly change the rules for one side of that homeostasis there's this assumption that this side will just stand still like we're we're suddenly going to be able to have all these additional you know freedoms and additional options and we're just going to kind of nudge our way into the boardroom, let's say metaphorically, and you're going to make room for us, and we're all going to discuss things in a you know collegial way, and it's all going to be fine, right? But what happened is we discovered once there was freedom of movement on this side, well, all of a sudden men started making different decisions as well, and that's kind of the point we made last time about the shotgun marriage and about things like this. So what I'm getting at here is a a more thoughtful, a more nuanced conversation about the different interests that are in play when you say the word feminism, for example. And if you think you mean, I just want equal protection under the law, most reasonable people would be in favor of that. But there's this other thing, this sort of fundamentalism uh, that we're seeing, where no, what that means is you're going to smash the patriarchy and so forth, right? That's it's this other thing. Well, 
in a sense, the same thing could be said about marriage. It could be said about any kind of fundamentalism. It doesn't really survive scrutiny, right? So a lot of these moves we're seeing, I would describe as essentially reactionary moves to a world of, you know, this is the printing press times a million, the internet, right? Like you, can, you cannot control access to information. So you're seeing all these different ways that various gatekeepers, you know, whatever particular thing we're looking at, are trying to enforce the boundaries of their particular thing. And it tends to lead to these kind of reactionary moves. Yeah, and, and with the, the gatekeepers and um, the fundamentalism, um, you, know, you know, foolishness tends to uh, accumulate around the things you're not allowed to talk about. And uh, there, there are so many things that you're not allowed to talk about, questions you're not allowed to, to even raise. And, and those are the places where you see the most foolishness and destruction, I think, where you're not allowed to talk about, well, is it, is it better in some cases to stay, to stay at home and, and raise kids in some circles? And other circles, you're not allowed to talk about you know, pursuing a career. Um, and, and those communities don't talk a whole lot, and, and we're the worse off for it when those groups don't have discussions. And, and the folly just uh, abounds in the confusion and the polarization, and we get worse at navigating and being able to discuss these kinds of things. It's, it's a well, high... Oh, go ahead, Catherine. I was going to say, I think it's hard when we... Um, we can't tell people what their values ought to be, even in the most basic way. So for example, you can't, well, you can, but we don't say things like, one of the most important things is for us as a species to have children and for those children to be well-attached, well-loved, well-educated, supported so that our primary job as you know, being told as young as 14, your primary job is the next generation to do well behind you. That's the primary job. And some of you will do that job the best way as a scientist and you won't have children, but you'll do things that will help all those children move forward. And some of you, your best job is gonna be to just love like two of them. That's it, that's your whole job. Um, instead, we as a society have decided that the only thing it's safe to say is one of the primary values in your life is to be happy. That's the only really safe thing we're allowed to say. And then everything after that, we have to justify on the basis of how much will this make you happy versus unhappy. And if I can prove scientifically that this will make you unhappy, then I can make an argument for why this isn't a good thing for you. But because we can't say things that seem to go against or would put the goal of personal happiness second, third, 10th down the list, it makes it very hard to discuss the other values that we need to have as a society. And so because we aren't talking about those other things and saying these are legitimate priorities and you should have them. And if we don't collectively, we will all fall apart. Um, I think we're seeing everything falling apart. So. Mm -hmm. I was listening to Luke Burgess's book, Wanting, which is really a good book. I've really been enjoying it. It's, it's his sort of uh, Rene Girard for dummies. 
and um, it's nice, nicely applied. He tells the story of Zappos, which was, uh, you know, maybe Rod knows a lot about this, a, a company that, you know, in the business world, I know this because in the 1990s, because of what I said about pastors, pastors were all supposed to be right, reading business books instead of theolo- theology books. So I read a bunch of business books. And Zappos was this, you know, corporation that was doing really great. They got bought by Amazon, but they they sort of they they wrecked themselves because the the visionary CEO basically said the the purpose of this corporation is to make everyone happy, employees and customers alike. And and what he didn't recognize, according to the books, basically started a lot of um, basically rivalry dynamics, mimetic rivalry between people. And also there's the fact that, you know, what makes people happy? The right amount of order. <laughs> and now <laughs> now the right amount of order varies acor- acor- across the temperaments, because some people like me, I can tolerate a high degree of chaos, which anybody who's been around me enough for my church or my channel should recognize that other people tolerate far less chaos. But that that happiness thing, as Peterson mentions many, many times, is eh, that's not such a that's such a simple thing to be pursuing out there. And not always desirable because it basically, I, I don't know if Zappos has recovered, but sort of wrecked the corporation. It, the thing just fell apart. You know how that story ends with him personally? No, no idea. Well, I'd encourage the audience to do a little a little Googling on him. It's an unbelievably, it's a biblically tragic story. Um, he, yeah, he he really, well, he died in a fire apparently of his own creation he became oh. fascinated by he would he would light fires uh he he did a lot of experimentation it's i i don't want to say too much because i'm drawing from memory of reading a couple of pieces about this um it was covered i think in the times and a few others and it it was a it was a, a remarkable story you know just just shakespearean um just to elaborate on a little bit, he wasn't just, he actually, there was a, there was a, a, a big, they did a study or some kind of internal research or something where they sort of tried to, you know, you know, optimize worker satisfaction. And they had a, a it was like, I don't know, four or five, six bullet points. I remember at the time sharing it with my own colleagues because it was so good. And it wasn't just about being happy. It was like, essentially, I would describe it as something like being meaningfully engaged. Um, a degree of autonomy that what you were doing was 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 mattered and that there was a, a trajectory to what you're like you're yep. going somewhere with it it was actually really really thoughtful and really well done so it wasn't it's in a sense it's, it flattens it a bit to say all the their whole thing was happiness maybe that was their slogan or whatever but it actually was really deep and well thought out he was obviously an insightful person who who yeah his the end of his life is a tragic tragic story wow I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up a little bit. Were you going to say something, Catherine? Did I, did I... Probably, but I don't remember now. <laughs> I, I, for, for the three people who tuned in hoping that I would have recommendations of British television from our last conversation, I, I, I feel like I would let them down if I don't mention that there's a new season of the great British baking show which I highly recommend for anybody who doesn't like all the, the dark stuff that you see on television. This is a reference to our last conversation. <laughs> but, you want to see people but, at their absolute best. Well, we can, we, can, we can get there from here. I mean, even something like 
those shows and they're popular. And when my kids were living at home, we watched a lot more of them because my kids watched them. And I never had, I never would have stumbled on that show myself. But I mean, what does that show? I mean, wasn't wasn't that once the realm of domesticity? <laughs> and so much of wisdom has been professionalized, even though on many of these shows, some of the some of the people who participate in it are self-taught, self-made. This is their, these are their hobbies. It's really interesting. It's not just, you know, top chef or people who are working in restaurants, but, you know, and, and, and then you also have the point that we're we're just living in a, we're just living in a, a weird culture. One of the, one of the women that goes to this church, um, who, if anybody who comes to this church for two or three Sundays, will get to know this woman. Um, and she is, she is dearly loved, but I remember when she, she was helping to run this child care center, which was run by a couple of women in this church. As a business, it failed miserably. But I remember watching her seemingly make meals for children out of almost nothing. And they always tasted good. And she just had all of this cooking wisdom that was, you know, born from intergenerational poverty Um she she knew how to take almost nothing, and even now she'll often bring food to coffee break, and just you know she she she's a whiz in the kitchen, and you know no no profession at all, but um that that was intergenerational wisdom. Mothers taught their daughters, and but now now we watch it on TV. So so we talked about this before we got on, but I I didn't I didn't do my homework this week. And come prepared with something written because as soon as I as soon as I described it as homework, you knew I wasn't going to do it. Um, but I I did I did think it would be useful to kind of go back to our last conversation and kind of try to, you know, this is now about a month later, sort of pull these things forward again because there were some things that came out of it that I thought were 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 useful and maybe will generate will kind of keep us moving forward because. My hope is that we'll start to pivot to start actually giving some concrete advice, like maybe, you know, at least try to, um, maybe, um, or at least be able to describe a world that might actually work, that would be uh, at least pragmatically possible. Um, but, you know, we had, so we, so we had Paul's, I'll call it uh, grim realism, <laughs> where he's, he was describing marriage and I was giving him a hard time. He's talking about, you know, the role it plays for some, where even the, the marriage is not particularly great, but it's still better than there's they're still better off having uh, being married um and you know i think that was an important part of that conversation because there's a truth there that's not it's not sexy but it's important and then um catherine introduced the idea of the good enough marriage uh, which uh, was you know sort of like the good enough mother but applied the same kind of idea to marriage you know maybe maybe uh, we, we become a little more realistic about our expectations of what this thing is um Good enough is maybe good enough. Um, and then a big one is Eamon introduced the whole concept of secure attachment. Um, and I think we all agreed at the time that like, oh, there's just so much more there, right? It's almost, it's so foundational to almost everything else we're talking about. And I remember I, I, a, a really memorable trip I took. Um, it's more than 10 years ago now, uh, to Scotland. And so we visited Edinburgh, right? A beautiful city. And it's, you know, it's one of these old cities. It's a 
something like I just googled this. It's like a thousand years old. There's a castle right in the center of town, up high up on this this you know this this little mountain. It's a volcanic you know mountain, basically a little small hill. And this old the old city um, that's about the same age. So it's you know it's essentially a medieval uh, place, and you can you know take tours of this. There's walking. There's ghost tours and things like this. So there's all these like dungeons and vaults and and it's really really beautiful um and my, my some of my heritage is, is scottish uh so you know we found some some family names and things like that and so we're doing this tour and so you're you, you know we're standing in a room that's i don't know 12 by 12 you know just you're it's it's dark it's it's stone there's these narrow cobblestone streets that kind of all feed down the hill to this like slough at the bottom of the hill and it's, you know, it's just plain four walls. And they're describing how many people would have lived in this room, you know, when this was a, a, a thriving city or town. And so, you know, you might have an entire family in this little small room, right? And of course, there's no electricity. There's no running water. There's in the little cobblestone street outside, there's a gutter. It's just a, it's like a recessed, recessed part of it right at the edge of the doorstep. Between the doorstep and the street is this kind of recessed part. That's the gutter that runs down to the bottom of the hill, right? And so they're describing, like, at night, there'd be a chamber pot. And so when you relieve yourself, you know, you just put it in the pot. And in the morning, you just dump the pot down the, down the gutter. And everybody does that. And it just all rolls down the hill, right? And so I'm imagining, so you were living in that environment a thousand years ago. You're, you're, in, in evolutionary terms, you're essentially the same organism we are now, because, you know, what are we, are 200, 300,000 year old homo sapiens? I mean, you know, a thousand years ago is blink of an eye. Like, it's essentially the same creature that we are today in terms of our biology, right? So you're awakening in the night to the sounds and the smells of human beings. So it's everything, right? Um, and that includes, you know, having sex, and, you know, everything, right? So I'm like, trying to imagine that world right and this reminds me of something that you said a long time ago paul which is something like the first extra dollar we have the first thing we spend it on is privacy <laughs> right because no one would describe that environment as as attractive right we've obviously made a tremendous amount of progress but as recently well until the invention essentially of electricity most of life was going to be conducted on the sort of the rhythm of the of the seasons and the and the rise and fall of the sun, right? Sure, fire, kerosene, candles. I mean, you had, you had light, but not not good light. And you know, plumbing, running water, all these things, right? So, imagine a child being born into that setting and growing up in that setting, and compare that to a child today. You know, we call it now we call it sleep training when you know, because mom's got to get up for work in the morning, right? So, you, you know, you used to remember the Spock method. I think it was Dr. Spock. I think it was back in the 60s. There's this whole movement to like, I'll oh, just let him cry. <laughs> and of course, now we realize like, you know, you just, you just talk about learned helplessness. You just taught that child that doesn't matter how much it cries out for what it needs. It will not be answered. Like, great idea, right? So the, compare a world where you're, you, you can't escape human beings. Like you're, you're there, you know, whatever. There's 12 of you stuck in this little room where you're doing everything together, right? You're, you're born and you're probably never put down, basically, right? You're, 
you're just always being touched, always being held. You're, you're just part of the rhythm of what it is to be a human being. And compare that to, I mean, I shared a bedroom with my brother when we were growing up. Now that's like practically barbaric. <laughs> like we each have to have our own room, you know, right? Um, so the, 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 just the pure difference of experience between our recent history and now in terms of what it is to be just experientially to be a human being. And then we wonder why we have so much, you know, neurosis, basically anxiety and depression and all these, uh, these, essentially, I would describe that as a kind of, of kind of disconnection, right? You, you're just completely disconnected from what it is to be a human being. So the, 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 the idea of creating the conditions under which people would come into the world mm. securely attached, I think has to address it right at that level. Like we, we have to recognize that you're, you know, we're deeply social creatures. This is some of the stuff we've talked about before. So a constructive conversation about what would a future look like that would be generative, that would take into account what it is to be human and, and build systems and structures that would actually facilitate that is I think where we could take this conversation. And I think there's a lot to be said about what kinds of things might actually work. That, that you, and that conversation that you had with Vouch, Paul, that, uh, that a friend recently just sent to me, and you know, I think I watched it at the time, as I told you, like you were on fire, man. You were really good in that conversation. But but Vouch was actually described. He he was making a lot of really good points about communal living, about what's happened, what capitalism has done to, you know, what the free market has done. Is, is, is essentially the same conversation we we're just having about feminism. It's like who's against being able to buy the goods that you want to buy at a price you both you know freely negotiate. There's a lot of powerful things about the free market, but there's all these tragedy of the commons effects that we're all living with, and being able to talk about those things in a more realistic way and then start thinking about ways to mitigate those effects, I think is actually probably useful. That's a big thing to bite off. And, you know, when, when you're talking about it, I was thinking about the fact that for most generations, part of the, part of the struggle with wisdom is that you need so much of it. And what you just pointed out is too, is that, you're also going to need a system that integrates it, that allows for its continual propagation, its um, its reclamation, its storage, its dissemination. You know, part of my, you know, part of my critique of of John Verveke's project is just that it's just way too massive. As and and part, I think of of what you can't look at history and look at you know again over the last couple of years now especially i've been talking to a lot of people from conservative jewish communities and now you know increasingly islam is popping in i've obviously seen a whole bunch of different christian communities religion you know, it, it almost all the way, it almost always boils down to a three-letter word. And and that then becomes the tie that goes all the way down. So let's say Sinai, you have God on Sinai, and then you get 10 words 
and that then goes to you know 613 laws and then that begets in other words there there's got to be sort of a coherent there's got to be a sort of coherent framework that sort of pulls all of this together and religions have been those things and i think part of the part of the reason we're struggling with this conversation to get to application is that in many ways marriage it's a little bit down the um down the hierarchy but not much <laughs> marriage is one of those top level organizing you know, you, you, principle is too reductive to when we talk about what mar- institution is a little bit better. That, you know, well, this is this is what marriage means. So don't sleep with someone other than your spouse. You know, there's there's one of the you know higher level things, and of course it goes down there. And so th- I think that's part of part of what we're we're bumping up against. Uh, and within that, um, you know, what wisdom has a a dimension where it's what do you do? How do you make a good choice? Um, there, there's something very like there's something deeply personal and idiosyncratic about wisdom, where uh, it's a community knowing you, um, you being actually really deeply known. Um, I, it's something that, for all this uh, you know, talk about um, AI therapists potentially in the future, um, it's there's an individuality about each person and an application where, you know, I have I have some clients where I'll I'll tell them one thing and I'll tell another client something completely different because I, I know them. It's like, this is, this is not a good career path for you, or this is not uh, a decision. This is not a place where you're going to flourish and somebody else, they, they might, but you know, I, I can't say anything like that till I get to know them. Um, I have people in my life who know me well, that can, I, this is about two years ago, I had somebody tell me, um, she said like, Eamon, don't get bored of your success. And that really stuck with me. It was like, oh, this person knows me. This person knows that I could get disinterested and want to move on to something else. And, um, but that's not a danger to, to others. And so there, there is that knowing what to do, that, that operationalizing a set of actions. Um, but there's also that being known very deeply by the people around you so that um, you can make a wise decision. It's, it doesn't just go outward towards action. And I think that's why there's, a receptivity to gurus or ideology um, because people are like, I don't have anyone who knows me well enough to tell me anything anyways. I'm just kind of flailing here. And uh, yeah, with, without that, people who know you and, uh, and love you and are invested in your well-being and your flourishing, how, how do you move from wisdom that is generally true and applicable for people and then actually move out and um, not only make those initial steps, but then make all the corrective steps along the way without, without being known. I just don't think that's, that's possible. Wisdom isn't a program. Um, Wisdom isn't an algorithm. Um, It's, it's so dynamic and, and deeply personal and interpersonal. Uh, And that's also what helps you correct along the way is when you're, you're known and you have that, that corrective feedback. Um, you know, I guess you have it from like a, a neurological perspective. It's like, yeah, you're, 
you need, you need a cerebellum that's helping you correct, keep your balance so that you're oriented and able to, to keep making steps forward and pick things up. And uh, without that feedback, um, you're, you're just, you're lost. Even if you start right, you're, you're going to trip and fall. And uh, that, that dislocation, that alienation um, means that even what's said as general principles um, only goes so far um, because it's, it's disembodied and it's impersonal. And yet, even though it can only go so far, I think there is a lot we could say where it can get people started. Yes. And then, yeah, you have to personalize from there. But at least if you're like, in like on average, this is a wise path, personalized from here, mm-hmm. you know, that gives somebody somewhere to. Yeah, it's not all just that. Yeah, it's, it's both. I have, a, I have a few proposals, if you guys are interested. Sure. That I could, I could, I could sort of pilot here. I'm always put interested, little, Rob. Put a little weight on them, see what you think of them. Um, so I remember, this first occurred to me about, about a decade ago, I, I realized like, oh, wait a minute, never before in human history, there are, there are, are, and more importantly, are going to be, I'm thinking about this 10 years ago, more than ever before in human history, women who either by choice or by circumstance will never have children. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially, you know, an obvious outgrowth of the pill and everything that's come since, but not necessarily something that we thought all the way through when we introduced this new technology. And again, not against new technology, but you're, you're, I don't, I'm not hearing you, Paul, you're muted. Keep your volume up. Uh, is my volume too low? Sometimes you drop your voice and, and oh. I, 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 I want to make sure everybody catches everything you're saying. I'm not used to talking on the internet like you. Um, <clears throat> But uh, thank you for interrupting me because I, I didn't know that. Um, so, and that's, I'm not saying that is a, necessarily a good or bad thing. I remember thinking like, I don't know whether I should even say this out loud because it's kind of like I'm noticing something, but I already realized that even pointing it out seems a little delicate, right? It's like how many women once that stage of their life is no longer it's behind them and it's no longer an option. I'm thinking, well, what, first of all, it's a huge cohort that has never existed before in human history, right? What, if anything, are they going to have to say about, right? You know, in a sense, that's a, I remember thinking this is a massive political uh, development because they're going to have a voice and they're going to vote and they're going to have things to say. I'm sure some will double down and others will have regrets. I'm sure it won't be a, a monolithic thing. So I said I was going to make a proposal. So here's a proposal. For those who want a family, the idea that you spend the first sort of 15 years of your your adult life sort of sacrificing yourself on the altar of corporate America is probably not the most constructive use of those 15 years, right? But the way the system is structured, you don't really have a choice if you want to have anything like resembling a career. So what or security. If, also, also, yeah. What if we, you know, and this is where institutions really can help, either existing institutions or perhaps ones that don't yet exist but should, right? 
What about institutions that make it their priority to help women re-enter careers at midlife? You know, from late 30s to early 40s, their kids are at a point now where they don't need them as much, and they can gradually begin to educate themselves and re-enter the workforce and pursue any profession that they want. And we all benefit from another 25 or 30 years of their productive endeavors if they want to, right? If they want to. What if we not only normalized that, but made that a realistic option? Um, with, I, I own, among other things, I own an IT company and we're, we were remote long before remote was cool. We've got people all over the country. And one of the, the best things about one of the early choices we made was to really try to make it accommodating to professional women who had become mothers who needed flexibility and maybe could give four hours a day and be able to work around their schedule. And it's been so good for the company. And it's, it's one of these sort of beautifully sort of reciprocal things where, where they're so grateful to still be able to, you know, use their talents and their, in many cases, multiple degrees and professional training, and, you know, a lot of really valuable uh, skill sets. And then they can still you know, you know, exercise that part of themselves and then be there when the kids get off the bus, you know, so to speak or whatever. So I have other proposals, but that's one. Like, what if we, and maybe this institution doesn't yet exist, but should, that actually does all the steps, helping women make that, uh, make those life choices along the way and then make it so that they can be reintroduced into a professional society if that's what they want to do. I'd love to hear Catherine's idea about this. Well, I'm bringing it up. I'm just thinking a lot. Um, so there's things I like about it and then things that I'm kind of stumbling against. So I really like the fact that you're trying to accommodate women having children young. You're trying to, because that is the best outcome for kids, right? Young, healthy moms who are energetic and all that, like that's the best deal if moms can start off young. That's ideal. So if we're going to plan society from the get-go, that's a nice way to plan it. And then ideally, they're able to, like you said, once their kids are a little older, they've started school, they're stepping back into the workforce. So I like that part of the vision. Where I'm bumping up against things is the idea of institutionalizing it and having an institution that encourages or supports it in some way. And I think... Um, part of the problem is that it's too removed because what women need is groups of other women who are doing, who are, who are mentoring them into motherhood and then into possibly the workforce afterwards as well. I don't think that, um, it's why um, churches either do well or struggle too. Like you, it needs to scale to the right size. And so for an individual woman, an institution will often be too removed, just like a massive church is often too removed for the people who are genuinely needy. Um, massive churches do well for people who are doing well. Um, and so if you have women who need support moving forward, and maybe your idea of what an institution would look like is different than my idea. You know, that might be. You're already making my institution better. Ah, okay. Tell me why. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm using the term very generically, right? I'm just saying any kind of organized effort of any kind, I'm going to put in under the category of institutions. Okay. Kind of Paul's, I think, you know, without individuals, nothing happens. Without institutions, nothing lasts. Uh, so yeah, you might be thinking the Citadel or something, you know, like, 
although I do think that there are there are many, many, many colleges and universities that will be out of business unless they get really creative about their business model. And this is an opportunity for some of them to think about focusing on women who are trying to reenter, for example. That's, a, that's an institutional you know, a, a, a response to what I just said. But to your point, also, just organize groups of older women who are mentoring, and, 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 and maybe this is a feature of an organization like this that doesn't exist yet, but should, right? So yeah, I, I'm using the term very generically, just meaning any kind of organized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I remember. No, there, keep going. I, um, there was a. I can't remember if it was a proposal or an actual university that was doing it, but there was a group that had the same sort of a mindset of how it would be, and so, or ideally, would be for women, um, and it was a setup where. Ideally, women, as soon as they got pregnant, they could exit the workforce, engage in motherhood, and then there would be a plan for reentry, but a gradual plan so that when the children were young, maybe they're doing some retraining, because most women don't want to be at home 24-7. There's the odd, like, homeschool fanatic mom who's just like me and my babies all day long, but most women get kind of depressed if they're alone with their kids all day, and they don't actually want to be there. And it makes them more aggressive mothers. Um, and so it's not actually great. It's good for there to be time where the kids are out with other kids playing and, and they're mixing in with other adult women. And so um, the part of the strategy was while the kids were young, but not super tiny, there's some retraining, there's some minimal, like you were saying, maybe four hours you know, of work here or there, but with support for childcare throughout that system. And then I think they also even had integrated some kind of a plan for how if the women stayed on board with either the school or the, the work site, I can't remember which it was. Um, there was like accommodations for different hours as the children aged, but then also shifted um, pay scale for how to make that a more economic, um, economically viable choice. So I like all of that. The thing that I feel is larger problems um, maybe not larger, more salient to me problems. One is a lot of young women don't want to have children right now. Um, it seems like there's more of a fissure than there used to be. There's some young women who really, really want to have children and they really want to stay home and have those children. But most young women aren't interested in having children. And the proposal of having your children when you're in your early 20s seems crazy because that has been sold as this is the time for you. This is the time to go and have as many experiences as you want, travel the world, sleep around, try some drugs, have fun. And then when you get older, you have to put all that fun behind you and settle down and be a mom, which is going to be self-sacrificing and hard. And you're going to drive kids around and you probably shouldn't be like smoking pot every day if you're doing that. And you probably shouldn't be drinking every day if you're doing that. And there's a lot of young women who are thinking, that sounds like, you know, I want kids, but maybe I'll start that when I'm in my like, whatever, like 33, like I'm going to have fun and I'm going to go to school and yada, yada, yada. And so I think the biggest problem right now is if you set up that institution, I don't see many young women getting on board and saying, yeah, give me a baby. I want to stay at home with my baby for the next five years. I'll have a few of them and then I'll go back into the workforce. They're like, wait, but when am I having fun? When I'm old and saggy? no, thank you. I want my fun now when I am at the top of my sexual like power. That sounds like fun. People will buy me drinks now. I have to buy my own drinks later. So I think that's the bigger social challenge. 
moderator opportunity for rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. I love this. This is great. <laughs> Where's my so, popcorn? <laughs> of course, of course, you're right, Catherine. In other words, you're describing this thing as it is. You know, there's a lot of people quite cynical about the entire enterprise, marriage, children, the whole thing, right? So you're right about that. In a sense, remember, my proposal is, is a partial, uh, I have other proposals, but as a proposal, it's a partial answer to the, that state of affairs because a lot goes into that state of affairs. That's why we're on episode number four of this conversation, right? It's a problem. It's a big problem, right? And you're absolutely right. Um, but we've, as we have discussed in our previous conversations, some of these young women are noticing the lay of the land and they're recognizing that if they play the game the way you described it, when they reach 32 or 33, the world is not going to look the way it looks when they're 22 and 23. And some of them are already starting to realize, you know, I kind of like the idea of finding myself a good life partner early and getting started building something together. Even if maybe we wait to have children, at least I'm not competing with all of the other 32 or 33 year olds who are now competing with 22 and 23 year olds, right? There is this, we've talked about it, there's this fundamental misalignment of interests between particularly young men and young women. And you could argue, as I've argued before, that marriage is kind of like a historical overlay designed to constrain some of these misalignments. Because if you just let everybody optimize on what they perceive to be in their best interest, they're gonna make a whole lot of bad choices in the, that they will ultimately often regret later in life. So th this, and I'm used to sort of starting organizations long before it's obvious that anybody would actually want them or need them. So I'm, I'm describing something where we're five years down the road, we're 10 years down the road, we're a generation down the road, where a lot of people are trying to figure out how to make important life decisions before they have all the, the tools to make them and making sure that there are resources for them to make those kinds of choices and to be able to actually essentially do a, make a countercultural move like, you know, like you're describing, right? So that's sort of my my first answer to that. And the the you, you know you never wait to start a business until it's obvious that everybody would want it because it's too late, right? I mean, the, the whole mm -hmm. point is you essentially try to anticipate the needs of the future, and then you try to come up with answers to those potential needs. So that's I'm not proposing this is a is a total solution whatsoever. And when I say institutions, I'm thinking a whole variety of answers to this across the society where we start to become more flexible about how we try to address this, this fundamental problem of the first, say, 15 years of your adult life. And all these, you have to make all these really important decisions before you're really ready to make them. And again, to reiterate my definition of a healthy culture or a good culture, it's something that affords wisdom to individuals who not have not had time sufficient to earn it on their own. And the the conflict you two are talking about is exactly something like that, that the perspective of a 33-year-old, I mean, Rod sent us some videos and you've got these 33-year-old women saying, I'd like to have five children. And you can imagine a fertility doctor in the background thinking, good for my business, go ahead, give it a shot. Five? Yeah, one or two, maybe. You know, we have five children and often if I walk in some place, my wife and I have five children. People look at us and think maybe we're these are blended, and I we brought different ones into the marriage. No, we had five together because my wife was 
you know, 22 and I was 25 when we were married. And, you know, even we didn't even, I was then, you know, it was still a couple of years, three years before our two and a half before our first was born. And then three and a half before the next one, then they started because there's this, one of the things that we figured out too, and doctors out there can correct me if I'm wrong. We, we sort of think women's bodies are mechanical. People aren't real mechanical. <laughs> and, you know, it, we, my wife and I sort of figured out that, you know, her body didn't quite know what to do to make babies. And then it got one and about three years later, figured out how to get the second one underway. But after that, the body's like, I know how to do this. And at that point we had to say, Ooh, we have to, uh, um, Slow down. We're, we're gonna be we're gonna be swimming in these critters. We love them, but how many can we really take? But I mean, your your point about Catherine, your point about what do women want? I mean, everything in our culture is geared towards exactly what you said, and the it's just the definition of youth. That and this has been very ancient. You can read about it. And the whole point of the Book of Proverbs is give young men wisdom, because you know what. They're young and young kind of goes along with young and stupid and they're not making good choices. Remember my first comment with this little segment part um, is there's this entire cohort of women and they're going to be around for decades more who will never have had children. And in many cases by choice and some by circumstance. And my point was, they're going to have something to say. And I was curious at the time I'm thinking, I wonder what they're going to say. Right. Cause that's a hard one. You might remember one of the things I said toward the end of one of our conversations is it's occurred to me that, you know, one of the most important contributions I can make is to be a cautionary tale. Um, that's a hard thing to say. Um, but once you get used to saying it, it's actually a really important and empowering thing to say, right? Because, at least some of that generation are going to have something to say about the choices that they make. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I shared that TikTok video, <laughs> I mean, those are viral. They're going everywhere. And, and it is so cringe. And the, you don't the think woman, people... the woman who's talking about the Sorry. guy, she's doesn't know if she's his girlfriend. They're, they're, they're not going to have sex with anybody else. But then she met another guy with better banter game. And she's like, well, I'm not so sure. That I assumed one. I assumed that if I said TikTok and cringe, everyone would know what I was talking about. <laughs> There's <laughs> Which, only one video on TikTok that's cringy. <laughs> just one. <laughs> Which is kind of my, my point, which is these are going viral. And some of them are really hard to watch because the person doing it is, you know, it's kind of like the uh, auditions for American Idol. Like in the bathroom, that sounds really good when they're singing. But to the rest of us, are like, what are you thinking? You're like, you're you realize that you're in public right now, right? Um, my point is all of that is going into this collective up-leveling of consciousness that we're all doing on social media and on the internet. So to, to your point, Catherine, yes, you're right, that we are encountering that. That is a very common posture for a lot of young women to take today. But we're also watching that play out, right? Everybody's getting a chance to say what they think about all of this. And I think there's a there's a there's already a, a group of people who are quietly going to they're they're taking notes and they're thinking about how they want their life to go 
And they, the last thing they want to do is turn out to be a wine aunt. Turn out to be right? a what? A wine, wine aunt. aunt. Wine aunt, we say wine. in the Northeast. Well, you know, what's a wine? I don't know what that is. It's, a, it's an it's aunt just, who just drinks wine and has no kids and has a career and travels and drinks a lot yeah. of wine. Yeah, it's just, it's a thing on the internet. It's the wine aunt. You guys say aunt. Um, <laughs> it's spelled A-U, is it? Aunt. Yeah, well, um, you and I with our Massachusetts thing, Rod. Right. It's where our uh, aunt comes from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, people are watching that and they're, you know, I don't want to be a Karen. I don't want to be this. I don't, in, in other words, all these memes are, are creating a kind of learning that will work its way into the culture. So well, I, I'm, I'm making the prediction that there's going to be a lot more people who are interested in finding yeah. a work life balance. There really are going to be interested in finding ways to do that. I agree. I think you're right. I think you're right that that means that we need to have paths that they can walk down that would facilitate that for them because they might know, oh, I'd like to have a family and I would actually like to start now, but not know how to do that, which is reasonable that they wouldn't know how. And it'd be nice to facilitate that somehow. So I'm on board with all that. I think that's a good plan. I also think for all these women that you're talking about, all the potential wine aunts. None of them are watching this channel, by the way, but go on. I, hope not. I don't. I, I feel bad. I don't. I don't want to hurt their feelings. It's not my point. They're not. They're not here anyway. Well, uh, young women are not the demographic this channel reaches, generally speaking. But I, I think that um, for those women who are in their mid thirties to mid fifties, who are still in that space right now, I think part of it is to say, okay, we don't have to just talk to the young women. Like, there's things they can do too. And I think the first thing is to. Now, this is where my bias comes out. So people might make comments. That's fine. Um, men and women are different. I think that <laughs> for most men, if they get to the end of their life and there is not some significant achievement that they have accomplished, they will regret. They will, make, they will have regrets. And I think that for women, if they get to the end of their life and there's not some person that they have nurtured into being, they will have regrets as well. And for the women who don't have children. Hot take, Catherine. Need... Really hot oh. take. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. Well, some people would disagree with it. Um, I, know. I know, I'm kidding. But I think the first thing is to say that is, I think, a reality for women and that they should take it seriously. And that they, there are things you can do without your own biological children. You can foster kids. You can adopt kids. You can go to the Boys and Girls Club and help out with families nearby. Like there's lots of things you can do, but to deny that that is actually a part of your makeup is only going to undermine you further. Like it's only going to make it way harder and way worse because now maybe you finally acknowledge it when you're like 62 and you're like, well, crap, I guess I better adopt like a 30 year old because I'm running out of time to nurture somebody <laughs> and I don't have the energy to do it with a 12 year old. Um, so I think part of it too is saying that generation of women who have sort of lost the boat to say, you haven't lost the boat. You've lost one version of that, which could would have been one kind of meaningful, fulfilling, valuable, but there are lots of kids and lots of people who need what you can offer too. And just because you couldn't have your own child doesn't mean you should retreat into a wine bottle and Netflix and abandon the world because you will become a better, happier person if you nurture others and people need it. So. I'm not going to drop the whiny up topic quite until I get a little sermon out. 100% agree. Yeah, well, absolutely. 
you know, one of the great moments in the Tammy, uh, Tammy Peterson, Louise Perry conversation was Tammy asking Louise about status mm-hmm. through so much of human history who, you know, it's mother Russia. And who is the hero of Russia? It's the woman of many children. It's the mother of many children. Same. And, you know, it's the mother of many children. This is, this is a woman of high status. And again, you've got a, you've got these cultures where the, um, your ability to produce children, especially sons, this helps your army, this helps your farm, this helps your cities. I mean, everything was built on population growth. And so women who could bear sons and many children, daughters too were loved, you know, all that status stuff, but women who could bear many children were held in high esteem. They had high status. Um, Grim Grizz likes to talk about the shadow matriarchy. Um, I mean, this was a major deal. And so this is this is also part of the package of, who was it, Rod, did you send that video clip of the population guy? Um, maybe it was someone else. People said well, it was someone else. I did. Yeah, well, you did. <laughs> and and so, you know, in many ways, the the unique one of one of the one of the unique powers that women have, you know, is reproduction. Women, I mean, people are enormously powerful. I've I've tried with many young people to say things like one of the most meaningful thing you can do in your lifetime is bring children into the world, raise them and watch them grow up. Mm-hmm. I, so this holiday season, all of my kids, they weren't all together at once, somewhere at Christmas, somewhere at new year's, but all of my kids came home. My wife and I now that there's, you know, we've, we've been able to travel to Australia. That was really cool. I was able to go to Europe. That was really cool. At the top of our pyramid is the kids coming home spending time with our kids. And it sounds so, you know, boy, Vander Clay, what a boring life. Maybe, but I'll tell you, I love nothing better than the kids being together. And why, even, even if I'm just there and they're all doing their thing together, they get along real well. We're playing board games. We're talking to each other. We're watching Lord of the Rings together. What have you? This is the highlight of my year. You know, travel. I love to travel. That's cool too. But having the kids together, boom, top of my priority. And so culturally, for many cultures, women having children, that's what gave you status. Now, and and that's, you know, and I, Catherine, I, I 100% agree with you. That we as a culture now are these screens, our media, that is forming the status hierarchies of our culture. And women are getting a message of... um you know, be a, be a YouTuber on van life and go explore the world. And, you know, if, if that schlub you're with now isn't as good as the next guy with a six pack and makes more money, et cetera, et cetera, move up that hierarchy. And, you know, the, the virginity part of that conversation was also just, you know, when, when Tammy Peterson said women lose status, when they lose their virginity, it was like, bang, it's like, wow. You might see a rare occasion where I have nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Only she can say something like that. Yeah. 
right. By the way, just a quick point on the popular, made me think of it, just sort of a random thought, but the population thing. So the population of the globe in 1900 was 1.6 billion. Would it be? The population of the globe today is 8 billion. So in 120 years, we've added quick 6.4 billion people to the planet. This is not going to be a screed about, about population uh, control at all. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, it's, it's a point about complexity. Um, that the sheer complexity that you introduce when you introduce that many new people, and then they're all connected, right? So it seems to me that we're describing an absolute, um, well, first of all, a gold mine of opportunities for new institutions, because the old institutions are simply not equipped to deal with this kind of complexity. There's too many different interests that are being pursued in all directions at warp speed. There's, there's kind of an accelerationism that's going on on almost every front, right? It's easy to talk about a technology, but it's happening in the culture, it's happening in a lot of other things too. So to me, that's an argument for thinking about what the institutions of the future are gonna look like and, and they're gonna meet the needs of the future. So that's just kind of a, a kind of an aside, but I have another proposal for you if you're interested. Um, and then we'll let Eamon talk. <laughs> um, so another piece of this is economic. So my wife, Ann, describes uh, when she started her business, she was in her early 30s and she had a condo and she was trying to buy a house and she realized that she was up against two income earners. And it was the first time that she reckoned with, uh, and she did very well because this is all before Nashville became what Nashville is now, right? So in, in her case, she actually made some very astute moves. Um, but she's like, wait a minute, this isn't fair. Like, like I, I can't compete with the offers that these people can make on this house, right? So, and this is a, th this phenomenon that I'm just describing is now just gone to 11, right? This was you know, some years ago, right? So, and Nashville in some ways is a great example of this. It's like, okay, everybody decides they're all gonna go to certain places, right? It's Nashville, it's Austin, it's Miami, it's Boulder, it's, you know, whatever, right? So you go to the it city and wait, well, maybe there I'll meet somebody, right? Like I'll, I'll get my career started, you know? And so like, it's having this sorting effect where, you know, New York city has been that for many, many years. Um, I'm going to go to the big city and I'm going to pursue my fortunes. Right. And, and so forth. Well, of course, one of the things that happens is because everybody moves there is the real estate becomes incredibly expensive. And so suddenly you've created this, you know, this sort of hyper spiraling vicious cycle, um, where you kind of have to get on the treadmill just to keep up, right? And so this works against all the stuff we've been talking about, right? Because you can't afford to step off of that and become a one or a one and a half income family. And you know who can afford to have kids when you know, you're just barely able to make your mortgage payment and so forth, right? And so for so many people, marriage now and mortgage and all that just looks like, well, that's adulting. That's so far off in the future. That's like going to Mars. Like I can't, I don't even know how I would get from where I am to there, right? And so this is kind of a structural problem. And it's a structural problem that keeps getting worse, right? Because of the nature of the way trends work. And, and The Big Sort was a book that sort of tried to address this, where we're, we're sort of sorting ourselves and people are all going to certain places and it's causing this kind of, this kind of, uh, uh, Stratification. Did I just make up a word? Um, 
here's an alternative. So one of the things I like to do, particularly now that I'm in the part of the country that I never really visited when I, you know, I was kind of either on one coast or the other, but now I'm in the South, right? So I've loved just getting in the car and driving. So we've done road trips all over the South and it's, it's just a wonderful thing to do. And one of the things you learn when you drive across this country is how many places there are where maybe the way to summarize it would be they've lost a reason to exist. There was some reason that they existed at some point. There was a plant there. It's by the fork in the river. It's railroads. It's, you know, something. It's right? most of Canada. Don't, don't tell Eamon and Catherine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's really sad, actually, to be in a place where the only people still there, uh, they all know that they don't have any options, right? Anybody who had options is left. Um, Chris Arnotti talks about the sort of intellectual strip mining, where we're taking all the best of all these towns and sending them off to big cities and, and good schools and they never come back, right? But the problem is even deeper than that, right? But what they have, that a huge part of this country, and I'm sure this is even more true of Canada, is one of the most valuable natural resources that's kind of hiding in plain sight, and that's called affordable real estate. And these towns, the, the, the traffic lights still work. The, the grid is still in place. Sewer lines are all laid. There's houses standing there. Many of them you could buy for the, for the back tax, taxes on them, right? So there's this massive opportunity, you know, the sort of go west young man phenomena that, that sort of was so much of the 19th century. There's a new opportunity here for people who are actually trying to get started in life to get a little bit organized. If you could just get you and maybe 12 of your friends to just pick a town, go meet with the mayor if they have one, and say, you know, here's our proposal, and we're going to take up these two blocks, and we're going to bring it back to life, and we're going to start businesses here. And because of the, what remote work now makes possible, you can actually earn an income from pretty much anywhere. And particularly if you didn't need that much of an income, you could really do it. I, I like the term sort of digital homesteading, right? You're sort of, you're recreating the business model of what used to be the family farm, which is this kind of unit of value creation. Well, you can recreate something like that by just going to anywhere that are just begging for people to come and you could start a life, right? So this is another proposal that would counteract these, this kind of in, insidious pernicious effect of kind of runaway rampant capitalism. I'm a capitalist, I like capitalism, but I see its excesses. Um, uh, so that's another proposal. I can't I, wait to hear this one. I'm really looking forward to this. I like your proposal. I think the first problem is who on earth has 12 friends that would be willing to move somewhere with them? Um, <laughs> if you could. And then if you go on your own, you're like, oh, I'm in this small town with nothing to do. And nobody here I want to be friends with because they're not like me at all. And you stick around for two years, then you move away again. I have Catherine, seen this. You just described yeah. a business opportunity. What about an organization that connects these people and helps them find where something's already gotten started? You know, there's only four people, but I keep Go describing there. business opportunities. I'm so good at this. <laughs> Go ahead, Eamon. Come on, Eamon. Because no, uh, well, I, I find this interesting because those, those were two similar things to what I was hoping to talk about as well. Um, where where we live in Northern Ontario, it's uh, a lot of towns that were sustained by pulp and paper mills and um, by mines, uh, but mostly pulp and paper. And uh, with 
a lot of the green agenda down in Southern Ontario, um, it just put the, the price of electricity just through the roof. So what was a, a huge advantage because um, we have a lot of hydroelectric dams because we have tons of water um, became a negative because it's all centrally controlled, right? Um, that aside, despite these towns shrinking, I've, I've watched a lot of people move back um, that have got married, they have kids, they want to move back around family or just to be out of the, the chaos of the city or to be in a place where they can afford a home. Um, additionally, uh, all of the, the plumbers are retiring, the electricians are retiring. So there's actually a lot of need, a ton of economic opportunity. And all you have to do is just, if you move there, you're going to be insanely busy. I mean, I, I find that as a psychologist. You know, there's just no other psychologists around. They don't, a lot of psychologists want to be in cities. They want to, you know, live, live that life. I'm, I'm not, I'm not about that. And uh, I have more work than I could ever get to. Uh, and then, you know, the more that I get embedded into the communities that I'm, I'm working in, the more that I become a part of the fabric of that community, the more that there's meaning in being there. And uh, it's really rich and, I see lots of opportunity in these small towns um, for, for men who are looking for the ability to own a home, um, to have a career that's going to bring them a, a respectable living and make them much more marriageable material. And it, those opportunities are just waiting. No matter how bad the economy gets, people need, need an electrician to come in. They need somebody who can fix up their house. There's a lot of practical skills that um, you, you won't get at university, but you'll get at trade school um, or, or college, uh, that there's, there's a lot of work in the physical world that's being neglected. And for people who can see it, there's a lot of opportunity. The other thing I was gonna mention, it's interesting you bring this up. Um, there is a, a group of families that have immigrated from India to Northern Ontario and they're doing really well because they stick together as extended family. So what's actually happened is they're buying up more and more businesses as there's nobody to hand off the, the family business to. Um, they'll say, okay, you come in, you work. We, we have a larger sort of umbrella corporation. You get shares for working for us over time. You get ownership. And, uh, and then eventually you can go and, and do something else, but you know, give us five, six years. And because we're family, we're going to stick together. So I see these larger extended families um, mopping the floor with everybody else. And uh, it's like, if you're, life is a team sport. <laughs> and if you're going out playing as an individual, I don't care. You can be the best basketball player in the world. And if you're going out one on five, you're done. You're done. There's nobody to pass to. <laughs> um, you're, you're toast. So, you know, not to, not the grim part of it is, okay, well, what if I'm really lonely and I'm isolated? It's like, okay, well, do something about it. You can wait and uh, you're going to be, you're going to be outworked and um, you're going to have, not going to have the capital um, if you stay that way. So get out and start making connections, revive those old family connections that have, have died off. Um, 
get to your church, wherever it is that you're going to find people, because you're going to do way more together than you ever could on your own. And that's going to fill the, the meaning, the community, all of those, those pieces. But um, if, if you don't, other, other people are, are organized with more so with family or where there's deep historical bonds between families. And that's one of the things you lose when you leave. And I think there's probably a lot of opportunity waiting for people if they were to go back home, to go back to the area they're from where it's not flashy, it's not exciting, it's not Miami, it's not Austin, it's not New York. Uh, and there's a there's a good life there potentially. And and that's not not everywhere. Some places are dead and they're gonna they're gonna die. They're already flatlined. Um, but there's a lot of places that haven't yet, and there's opportunity and. Um, so yeah, Rod, I, I'm all, all for it and am seeing this play out uh, where, where we live geographically. And uh, I think it's a, it's a major, it's a big answer to, to some of the difficulties that we're, we're talking about here. I love your comment about the trades, by the way, because I've been saying that for years too. It's like, if you just show up and do what you say you're going to do and you are able to do anything, basically any of the trades, right? Like you will just be so busy because it's just so difficult to find anybody that, you know, is good and reliable and conscientious and all the usual things that you look for. Massive opportunity. Yeah, you pride in your work. And I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, there's, there's young men that, you know, I, I see as clients and they, they move in that direction and, you know, their, their lives, they're far better off than they were looking to go back to university even, you know, it's like, no, get, get practical skills and, and you know, these other things, other opportunities will find you out if you do that. Um, yeah. And you know, the other, other thing that maybe we talk about, maybe we talk about another time, but um, yeah, fatherhood is just something that I, I am, I'm so passionate about and I've been so <laughs> discouraged over the years hearing how my peers will talk about about fatherhood. I remember getting together with a group of of guys, probably about 20, 25 of us um, at our church in Philly, actually. And uh, some of the comments were like, oh, we're here. I'm mean, like, worst time of day. Uh, it's between between 5.30 and 9 o'clock. I just hate, hate being around the kids. And as soon as they're down to bed, finally, it's, it's great. And we're thinking, like, what is going on in your home? Like, what seriously, what on earth is going on in your home that that's how you feel about it? Um, I, some of my most cherished memories, you know, my, my oldest is turning 17. Uh, we lived in Philly. Every, every night, um, we'd, we'd go out on the, the roof of the house, uh, and he would just talk about the day. And uh, we're coming back from, um, from work, and he'd, he'd say, oh, he had some Team made up for us to have a conversation. He's like seven, eight years old, and you know, lots of memories of you know shooting Nerf guns at each other. And uh, I had I had a great time as a dad. I absolutely have loved it. I'm already sad about it coming to an end at some point here, um, where they're not going to be in the house in the way that they are now. And uh, I, I and this is this is a generalization, so I know this as I say this. But I, I can't help but notice a pattern of, of, of disengaged fathers who then have really poorly behaved kids. Um, 
because the dad has not been engaged. He's not been involved. He hasn't expressed that he cares. Uh, he doesn't know who his, his kids' friends are. He doesn't know what matters most to them. And, and so then when he tries to, to exert his authority, it's just awful. And uh, it's like, what, what else do you expect? So, you know, invest, especially invest early. You invest early. More likely than not, um, you are going to enjoy your kids going through their childhood years, their, their teenage years. And there is such a deep satisfaction in seeing them grow up and, and figure things out and learn skills and gain competencies and, and struggle and be able, there, be able to be there when they have failures um, and they, they want to talk to you about them. Um, I don't have to ask my kids uh, how they're doing in school. They'll tell me, they'll say like, ah, I got to see. And yeah, they want to, they want to talk about it. And uh, you know, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Remember um, I, I did a, a concentration in um, uh, working with childhood disorders. And um, this one saying that, uh, you know, what, uh, what money is to adults um, attention from uh, adults is to children. Um, there is nothing more valuable to kid than the attention of, of an adult, especially their parents. You pay attention and it's 100% attention, not, not partial attention. Uh, your kids will eat that up. And then, you know what? They're not going to ignore you when they're older um, if, if you've shown that you're invested in care. And, and so you know, the, the narrative about, about children being a burden and being awful, I, it, it grieves me. It really deeply grieves me. And it, it grieves me when I see people believe it and then live that out. And, and um, yeah, they, they're causing so much more destruction than they realize. And it's sad because I think a lot of them also love their kids, um, but they've, they bought a lie. And, um, and it, it, we start to contrast these things too, or it's the things that a lot of influencers, influential people in our culture like to talk about with like, oh, level up with your career, level up with this, that. I'm like, level up being a dad. And, and I'll tell you, I, I would much rather have the, the relationship I have with my kids than, than having incredible material success. Um, not that those things don't matter. Of course, like you, you need to provide and, and there are real financial pressures when, when you don't have that um, available to you. But there's, there's no comparison at the end of the day. Um, when, when you have that investment in your kids and you know them, they know you, you love them and you've been along that, that entire journey uh, something else, Paul, when you were talking about, you know, the kids coming home being, you know, just a, a wonderful experience, a thing you look forward to. Uh, the week before we, we came out west here, my, um, my kids stayed with my parents. And uh, I was talking to my dad two nights ago, and he's had problems sleeping for like for a long time. And our kids don't usually stay with them overnight. Um, I guess since we've moved back, well, COVID's been about half of it. Uh, and that said, he's like, yeah, he's like the, the five days your kids are with us. He said, I just slept so well every night, every night I slept so deeply. It was so restored. He said, I think it was just having them in the house. It's also reminding me of, you know, you and your siblings and, uh, everything just felt right while they were here. Hmm. And, um, yeah, I just think it's so, it's just so beautiful. And, 
yeah, what's what's portrayed on TV. It's just so ugly. I mean, I'll, this sounds to be somewhat dramatic, but I really believe it. it's like it's just satanic. It's awful. It's ugly. It's horrible. The the buffoon dad who doesn't care about his kids is clueless, has no idea what's going on. I just hate it. And it's it's hard to uh, to quantify I think, the damage that that has done over the course of a few generations. And then it it creates incentives and disincentives, and it disincentivizes being a father. Yeah. And uh, it's it's tragic because I think it's it's been one of the most fulfilling and wonderful things in, in my life. Uh, and, you know, even, even our drive out here, it's funny. It's, it's like a 22 hour drive. And uh, our, our kids, um, they say like, one of the things I look forward to is the drive just because we're all together to talk. Um, and it's, it's just a wonderful time of, of connection. So, you know, I, I know that being a parent is, is hard. It's, and it requires a lot of sacrifices. I'm not, not at all oblivious to that. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, you, you don't, that, that's not what's most salient to me, I guess. I feel it, I can acknowledge it, I see it, but it's, it's not what's most important when I think about being a husband, being, being a father. Well, and I think in our culture too, you have um, a lot of guys with learned helplessness around yeah. that. It's like, that's they're told that's not something you can do. That's not something yeah. you're competent in. That's not something you can be capable of. Women know how to take care of kids. Women are the parents. Yeah. If you're the dad, you probably are just going to ruin it. Um, if your kids are like that, that's just the way they are. And you just have to put up with it. You, you know, it's not like it has anything to do with how you are as a father. And so I think we also have a lot of um, things that are true in our culture that just really kneecap dads. Yeah. I just want to, I mean, every conversation we've had up till now has been leading up to what the two of you just said in your last, you know, when you spoke a little bit ago, you called it a sermon, Catherine, and then what you just said, I just want to say, amen. It is, it, in a sense, no one could make a better case than what the two of you just did or what this whole series is about. I, I, it was really, really well said, really well said. Thanks, Thank you. Well, is this where we land the plane? We're, we're about at the two hour mark. Um, I mean, I don't have a pressing thing right now, but it's up to you guys. Well, the last thing I do want to say before we go is I, I'm a somewhat disagreeable person, Rod. So you put out ideas and right away I'm like, yeah, what's wrong with it? I, I don't know. But they're really good ideas. They're, you're right. Those are the things that we need, among other things. And it would be an extended series of many conversations with many, many more people than are here to figure out how the heck to do that well. But those ideas would actually work. And they're good, despite me initially poking at them a little bit. Well, they only get better by being tested. So no no offense taken whatsoever. <laughs> I just, that's why I, I, I brought them to you guys, because I thought, you know, here's a good place to air these things out a bit. Thank you. Well, and, well, and part of, you know, I, I didn't really weigh in. I mean, and Rod, this is true of, in some ways, both of our stories. Um, you know, I live on the other coast from my mother and um, my, my children didn't get to know my parents the way my two sisters' children got to know my parents. Uh, they, you know, my parents came out a few times, but not like living right down the street. 
um, or in the same town. Um, I mean, there's there's big pieces of this story. Uh, another thing I thought of when you were when all of you were talking about is so much of an immigrant story is like this. Um, but often when I think about my, my kids, my kids kind of laugh when I when I tell them what I want to do. And my wife and I are kind of pretty much on the same page with this. That you know, I'd love I'd love nothing better than to sort of have a I call it the compound. You know, have um, I, I don't you know I, I I don't necessarily want to have my children. I'd love to. I love it when my children live in the house with us. I mean, during COVID, we had three of them home. Loved it. You know, every now and then they'll come home for a little while and they're living with us. Love it. I'll I'll gladly take whatever inconvenience that I get from that for just more regular time with them. What are you watching on TV? What are you thinking about? How's your job going? What are your relationships like? That stuff is just totally cool. But for me, the the dream is sort of a compound where, um, you know, you can have some separate houses. I see sometimes people do it right down the street, you know. Um, when my neighbor, when my neighbor sold her house, my wife and I really were like, maybe we should just buy that house, um, and, you know, move one of our kids into it or rent it out to our kids or something like that. Because, um, you know, I have the same thought that, that Catherine had Rod with your idea of 12 families. What, what does that require? I mean, there's a Benedict option thing about, um, there's so a lot of that is actually being practiced and it's again, often religious people um it's it's people who have strong family ties often like immigrants and it's often religious people there needs to be something more than just economics <laughs> you need an economic aspect to it that's always a piece of it but it has to be something more it has to be convictional it has to be relational um and there has to be sort of a a value hierarchy that aligns because just as you know Catherine and and Eamon were saying, um, you know, even if I were to move, let's say, to Whitensville, Massachusetts, which is by no means the end of the world. I mean, that's, you know, Boston just keeps growing out and taking up the state. Um, even, even then, there's, there's still something to location. And, but these are all really good ideas. And, you know, towns, towns get in on that act, you know, they try to lure moscow idaho you know doug wilson you know tries to lure people into his church and his town and project a vision of this is this is where your wives will behave and your children will um behave uh, or whatever doug wilson wants to do so i i would add uh artists um artists often revitalize a place in a, mm -hmm. in a really really remarkable and beautiful way mm -hmm. um that your your point about Im immigrant the immigrant model, I, I'm always saying like it, 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 we've seen wave after wave after wave after wave. And if you listen to the sort of popular narrative, you might think that the American dream is dead, right? The opportunities are all gone. They're still coming. They're still doing it. It's still working. You can show up here, drive an Uber, get yourself a small apartment, enroll in the local community college, and eight years later you're graduating with your MD and you're, you know, you're fully participating in the, the American dream. It's still absolutely possible. It's sort of weird that we don't foreground that more. It's still possible. It still works, right? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's definitely a, a model that we should be holding out for people. Except a lot of Americans don't. So, so with all the trees that fell down, one guy, um, you know, came up, he knows one of the guys in the church and says, you know, I, I heat with wood. Can I have this wood? He said, if you can cut it and haul it, you can have it. 
And um, and then, you know, I, I got a security camera here and I saw another car drive in. I thought, oh, okay, what now? And I walked in. This is, it's his wife, you know, African-American man, Asian wife. They're out there. They're, you know, they're scraping and, and, you know, it's, it's not just, you don't just have to be from another country, one or two generations back to, to get in with this. And, and I see people all the time that have some, have some moxie, have some ambition and um, and and I and I actually see that also in the marriage space, and and part of the cool thing about many of the new friends that I've made via YouTube over the last number of years is I've I've seen that I've seen people who have, um, you know maybe their family of origin was rough, they meet someone else and the two of them kind of look at each other and say hey you know what we can do this let's let's do this together our, our both of our families were messed up but let's make commitments to each other. Let's be true mm -hmm. to each other. Let's have a common goal and an ambition and let's pursue this together. And they do. And, you know, economically, socially, they have kids that, that that's family is still a big part of the American dream. I think partly because there are ties within it that are so strong and so durable potentially that, and then it can also scale intergenerationally. Um, you know, what the, the good commitments, you know, Eamon, that's your story. Your parents mm -hmm. said, you know, we had broken homes and, and that can, that can scale two, three generations. If, if really pursued and stuck to it's a beautiful thing. That's something I'd like to add, uh, not to, not to be coy here, but most people who know me personally know that I rarely talk about things. If I'm not at least hatching something, um, I, I usually, don't talk about something unless I think it's potentially realistic. Um, and I, the way I sort of feel about where I'm at in my life, I've, I've, I've been fortunate. I've had some success. Um, and I've seen, I sort of seen what works. I've built a number of organizations from scratch and, and some of them are financially rewarding and others are just sort of karmically rewarding. Um, but I, you know, I'm at a sort I'm sort of at an age where, I've done a lot of things, not all of them were sort of like some kind of representation of my true self or something that was just, I saw an opportunity or something, right? And, I, and um, But I'm at an age where I'm thinking about the kind of things that I wouldn't mind spending the rest of my days doing. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, that's what I've been doing is I've been focusing on those kinds of things and, and I'm, I'm, you know, in, in a position where I could actually help make some things happen. So um, th th these, are, these are some ideas that I think would and, and others that could be discussed or th things I haven't even thought of, right? But um, I am interested in, in, in participating in a meaningful way, in helping uh, make these kinds of things happen, bring institutions to bear that might actually be able to support this kind of thing, either existing or new institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's part of my interest in this is, is, is more than just kind of a passing detached observer interest. Well, that's, that's, it's, and you know, when you say it that way, Rod, my imagination starts going because I think about, you know, what it would be, what kind of institution would um, help organize and, and incentivize. I, I don't mean that just financially, but in terms of dreaming, giving people, because that's really where the incentive is when you give people a vision um, to, to hold out the vision for, um the the women the women the mid career I have a lot more to a lot more thoughts about that because you know I watch you know it's many of us who have had children in our twenties or began having children in our twenties our wives have lived that and we've seen 
you know, you know, my wife, my, my wife might start making YouTube videos could be very interesting, especially in this area, because she's, she got a lot of thoughts and she tends to be prone to sermonizing. And, uh, <laughs> so she, she has to figure out how much she can say as a, as a teacher who's, um, but she's, she's got a lot of thoughts about child rearing and many of the things that we talk about here, you know, I get a lot of my ideas from her because she comes home from school and she's like, parents are afraid of their children. They don't know how to say no. Mm-hmm. And they, and they, and they, they, they don't spend any time with their children. You almost get the sense they don't like their children. That's a real problem. It's a real problem all it. the way around. And the kids, and the kids know. know it. Yes. 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 And, um, and so, you know, so much of what she sees needs happen in the world is parents stepping up, owning their authority. And, you know, and this is where we get other conversations. Okay. Is this, is the state school system helping or hurting? Are they, Uh you know, are they getting in the way? I mean, these are huge topics and, you know, you can understand it is in the interest of the states for children to flourish. But if you're, if because of certain really incompetent or negligent or, or poor parents, you sort of undercut the ability of people because to grow into parenting, because the truth is that you're not born knowing how to parent. You usually work from the script that your parents gave and something from just imbibed from your culture, but there is structure and reality and knowledge and wisdom to it. So it's there's you know we we kind of came into this conversation well how many of these we're gonna have how's this gonna go are we gonna go anywhere are we gonna give deliverables but Catherine was trying to interrupt you she was gonna try to say something go that's okay i well the thing is with parenting it's like you you can't be a parent really in society now now i am but the way society is scripted if you follow the script you can't be a good parent because to be a good parent you have to be able to um see who your kids could be and work to foster that in them and you have to balance between being like I love who you are and who you are right now kind of sucks you need to change who you are (laughs) and you need to hold both of those things and that involves saying who you are isn't good enough and I know who you should be more than you know, and I'm going to make you do it. And you're not allowed to do that right now in society because we're so Gnostic. We're like, no, no, there's your secret, sacred self. And that already exists. And I'm just here to somehow not get in the way of that thing flourishing, which will never happen because for many reasons, I I don't need to go on another thing, but I think um, it would be helpful if in the next conversation or one later, we land on some admittedly biased things where just say, okay, these, this is the path of wisdom for marriage. And these are deliverable. Like these are patterns that you can develop in your marriage that will make it better than not. These are rhythms and ways of participating that will ruin your life. Don't do that. And yes, I'm fully admitting this comes with a whole freight train of baggage of Christianity and my own history. So take it with a mine of salt. <laughs> maybe not a, a grain, a whole mine of salt, but it's a good mine. It's a good mine. And, and um, I think it would be helpful. Like when Amy was saying, wisdom has to be particularized. It's like, yeah, you have to particularize it. You have to make it individual to you. 
but at least here's a great starting point. And at least you have something as an individual you can disagree with. You can have a reason for why, maybe not this or that, but on marriage and parenting, like what are some good paths? Yeah. So yeah, you particularize from wisdom, right? Yeah. Well, what did you say last time, Amen, about contrasting the church and, and psychological institutions? I mean, churches sort of have a vision, but they can't implement. Yeah. I, I know you said it much better. Oh, that uh, they don't know how to operate, operationalize the processes that lead to that. And in, in psychology keeps the, the endpoint sort of obscured, although you can see it in the ethical codes and everything. Um, but operationalize everything um, down to the, you know, minutia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, in all fairness, I mean, it's, it's not like we're trotting on untrodden territory here, yeah. just in the church world. And, and again, part of what's been so fun about this little corner is that there's so many people who are so unfamiliar with a lot of the church world um, to the depths that's like someone who's, you know, in my shoes has been churches are absolutely dripping with products and programs. And I mean, the evangelical industrial complex has been spinning <laughs> out stuff, you know, good and bad in this area for a very long time. And, um, and yet, and, and, and I, I have to be really careful here because it's very easy, especially for me and my temperament to say, oh, it hasn't worked, but that's not true because <laughs> there are many, where there are many families and churches and institutions and traditions that maybe it isn't, hasn't worked perfectly or optimally, but it's sure a lot better that it's been in the world than if it wasn't in the world. Yeah, well, to, to that point, I'll, one of my most vivid memories from uh, my first year of running clinics in, in Northern Ontario, um, I'll get, because there's so few psychologists, I'll get a referral. And sometimes, sometimes there's like two years before I actually get to see the kid from when the referral was made because it's, the, the need is immense and there's just not many people. And um, I was reading this referral and it was like, kid doesn't the kid was like like five or six when the referral was made kid couldn't talk uh, apparently would like get very violent um he would pit people he had like he done all sorts of stuff and um i get told by the front desk okay you know the clients here and um the kid was maybe seven at the time uh kid comes in and, and says um hello to me waves his hand he's like hello Okay. And uh, I say, oh, well, you know, here's some things you can play over here. And kid walks over and is playing. And I, I'm thinking like, is this the right kid? So I went, I went to the front desk and I, I said, so is, is this, is this the right kid? Yeah, this is the right kid. And um, <laughs> I, I talked to who I think is his mother. And um, I find out that it's his aunt and that is his, his mother had been, um, I had been taken away because she had substance abuse issues. And uh, I, I, so I just said to the, to the aunt, I said, like, yeah, I, I'm really surprised. I'm looking at this referral and the description and the kid who's here and uh, they, they just don't seem to really match. And she said, oh, yeah, no, for the first like eight months we had him, it was, it was horrible. It was, it was hellish. 
And, and she described what her and her husband did. And it was like they set boundaries. Like a lot of the things that are best practices in psychology. And nobody had told her. She just kind of knew how to do it. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's like she doesn't need, you know, parent management training. She doesn't need this. She doesn't need that. She's doing it. And she said, like, yeah, he screamed his head off for the first three months. It was horrible because he, oh, that's right, because he would break iPads. You get an iPad, we did get his way, you smash it. And so they, they went through like, they were just like, you're not getting, you're not getting anymore. And he flipped out and, and they just weathered it. And, you know, here was this kid who had developed and was able to have a conversation and, and uh, behave himself and sit still. And at the end of the evaluation, it was like, he's fine. He's okay. You know, you're doing an awesome job. They'll just say, what you and your husband have done with uh, with this child is just, it's it's remarkable. And I mean, she broke down crying. She's just like, you know, we're just trying to do our best. But you can see that there are tools that you, when you, actually when you combine them with love, <laughs> you, you see, you see people really be able to live out their personhood and, and have it be developed. Yep. So yeah, there's, there's a lot that's, that's there. Um, it's when we just make it into to only tools yeah. that um, yeah. it's awful. <laughs> well, and I think that part of where the, I like that the evangelical industrial complex can go wrong is that often they try to, um, they try to particularize it too much. So instead of saying like, um, Oh, I can't even remember. I had an example and then I got so sucked into what you were saying. Um, but instead of just saying, uh, you know, with your, with your children, um, spend time talking to them every day. Like that, like just do that. They try to come up with a whole program for how exactly you should do that. So it's like they get too deep into the weeds. So I do think, yeah, there are programs out there and yeah, they have been helpful, but I think that there's like a, um, you have to kind of hit the right level of particularity when you're talking. And a lot of those materials have either aged out or cultures moved on and the level of particularity, it doesn't, it doesn't match anymore. And so they're not actually useful for people. So. Yeah, I think that's true. Talk to him about Jesus every day. Well, you can talk to him about Jesus. Just talk to him too. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> And I got more proposals, but we could do it another day. All right. All right. That'll be great. All right. I'm going to end the recording here. I find my little mouse. Here we go.